I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today we have one of our interview episodes where we'll be talking to Dr. Alicia Grandy. She has a very special place in my heart because she was my advisor in graduate school. She is currently a professor of psychology at Penn State University, and she had her, got her PhD at Colorado State University, also in industrial organizational psychology. Her research focuses on the balance between the employee's experience of stress and emotions and the organization's need for performance. Also really important for well-being because stress and emotions obviously impact how people feel in the workplace. And she really focuses on emotional labor, which is an area where employees manage their emotions as part of their job, specifically in customer service settings. So we'll be talking a lot about her research there, and we really hope you learn a lot and enjoy the episode. are here with Alicia Grandy. She's a professor of industrial organizational psychology at Penn State and she studies emotional labor and burnout. And we're really excited that you're here with us today. Thanks. Thanks you guys. Yeah and I took a class with Alicia and if any of the other Penn State professors are listening uh, they might not be happy about it but it was my favorite class I took the whole time (laughs) I was at Penn State. So I still actually have all of the notes and a binder and everything yeah so definitely awesome well I saved paper and I have my notes but they're all in Dropbox oh wow Mm. look at you I was ahead of the time you really were it's like California California spirit it was Lily and I we were super electronic I don't know if you guys remember that but we were always with our computers and all of our notes (laughs) you did that Evernote talk remember that yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. I was like scribing things into stone (laughs) (laughs) that was me So we go way back, and it's been awesome to work with you, and I'm so excited that you're here to join us today to talk about your research, because I think it's really relevant to what we do and what we're trying to share with the world about workplace wellness. I mean, emotional labor obviously has an impact on people, and so I'd love for you to kind of give a high-level overview as to what you research, what you study, and what that is, and then we'll kind of dive in deeper. Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so glad you guys are doing something like this. I think the fact that there's this rise of interest in burnout and worker health and everything, and this is one of those initiatives that's happening, I think is really needed. Um, It's been interesting how much more uh, popular press attention there has been lately, and I've been doing this for like 20 years, and it's Mm -hmm. like suddenly there's more attention. So there's something happening that needs some attention. Um, So emotional labor is is that experience of having to regulate your emotions as part of your job, part of your work role. And um, I, I equate it with physical labor in that with physical labor, it's a type of occupation, but it's also the type of exertion that you're doing. And with emotional labor, it's also a type of occupation, like often a customer service role would be emotional labor. Um, but it's also the type of exertion. So people are managing their emotions, they're hiding how they really feel, they're putting on a smile usually is the, is the direction that it goes, but you could also have to put on a stern face to communicate something to your followers um, or your clients. And the um, effort that that takes can uh, have some some unintended consequences that uh, businesses may not be fully aware of. And so kind of what I try to do is is more fully un- understand what is that process like, what is that occupation like, and what are the costs to the employee and the cost-benefit um, trade-offs for the business. So what are the most interesting findings in your work that you'd like to share with our listeners? Most interesting. Well, I one of my favorite ones um, is the one where we actually looked at the role of financial rewards. So, um, uh, 
the whole idea of emotional labor is that it's it's done for a wage. It's done as part of your paid job. And you know, we manage emotions all the time when you're right now, right? You guys are sitting there trying to not be overly smiley, and, you know, not laugh too much. True. Um, but but when we meet people for the first time, it's it's a it's a normal thing to do. So one of the things that makes it different is that you're doing it for that for that paycheck. And so um, one of the questions that uh, some myself and, and the lab wanted to ask was, uh, how does financial rewards play a role? Does it make it feel more controlling? Like if you're getting paid to smile, does that feel worse? Because it's kind of like putting a dollar sign on your smile. Um, does that feel controlling? Does it maybe make you exert more because you're really motivated um, and you might override your natural um, energy levels to keep smiling even when you shouldn't, you know, at that jerk customer that really deserves to get more back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, well, maybe, you know, getting paid actually makes you feel valued and supported and, um, you know, should be how, how things are done. Maybe that actually has a benefit. So um, we did a series of studies and, uh, and found it was really more the second. Um, and, it, and it should be pointed out, these are often jobs that are underpaid to begin with. Um, so they're kind of entry-level positions typically. They're positions that um, it's believed to be self-rewarding to smile at customers. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you don't have to pay people very much to do it or it's a natural tendency. And so there's an assumption that it's easy. Um, and so you actually see wages actually decrease the more emotional demands increase. But there are then tips or commissions or um, bonuses or a sense that, well, if I, if I do this emotional labor, then I will get um, some kind of financial or professional rewards. And the more that people felt that that was true, the less distressing um, and the more satisfying engaging in emotional labor was for people. And that, that was a little bit surprising mm-hmm. um, that it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel controlling to people. It actually made them feel, feel better about doing it. Even faking, even like faking that smile, which we typically find to be quite distressing, um, was actually quite satisfying when people felt like it was being uh, financially and monetarily supported and valued. So what kinds of financial rewards are these? You mentioned tips. Is yeah. that really kind of most often tips or? Um, so we, we actually, in that paper, we broke it down um, by high and low emotional demand jobs and high and low likelihood of financial rewards. And so there's a, different occupations in each of those categories um, mm-hmm. that we looked at. But yeah, so like restaurant server would be a prototypical high emotional demand, high likelihood of um, reward for, for, for emotional labor. Um, but there were also other ones that you might not expect as much. I mean, a hairdresser would be another one. There's tips involved with that. Um, sales commission, um, mm-hmm. clearly have to kind of maintain a constant pattern while you're selling things. Um, and then uh, you get the commission on that sale. And so you kind of can see a connection between your work, your emotional effort and the, the, the sales commission. Um, and even in other settings where it's not so much commission and bonus based, but there were people that reported Yes, if I do better at my emotional labor, it's more likely I will see a, an increase in my pay, like a raise. Mm. Um, or So it's also a perceptual, um, my workplace gives financial rewards for people who do this better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So tips would be the, the prototypical, the most obvious the most example. Obvious kind, mm-hmm. But, yeah, but yeah. there are other jobs as well. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one of my favorites. I think the other one was, the other kind of fun finding one was the Climate of Authenticity paper. So I, I have this belief that, I don't know, the world would be a better place if we would all just say what we really think and feel on a more regular basis. <laughs> so that's my own bias. But um, so I tried Shocking to cite it. Shocking as your advisee. <laughs> I did not know that was true. <laughs> I can be a little direct. 
um, yeah, so I, I decided to test it because, you know, I'm a researcher. And, um, and so we, we, we looked at whether groups differed. And this was in, in hospital settings. We looked at whether groups differed in their climate of authenticity. So this is among coworkers, right, or among the nursing and, and healthcare staff. Mm-hmm. Could you actually say, and, or did you feel safe showing your negative feelings? And it was a pretty interesting context because in healthcare, you're supposed to truly care and feel compassion. And mm-hmm. so to feel negatively at work you know, is, is, I think, dangerous, or it feels like maybe you're not being a good employee um, if you don't truly care at all times. Um, and so we, we found that uh, the more that they that these employees were experiencing patient mistreatments or hostilities or, you know, patients that are upset for a variety of reasons, the more they were having to fake it at work. Mm-hmm. So do that surface level, mm-hmm. putting on the, the face. Um, and that isn't, that's related to burnout. And that's very strongly and well-supported relationship. We, generally speaking, don't really like to, to fake that smile. Um, and the more we do it, the more burned out we are. But if those nurses or hospital staff people could go into like a back room and feel safe showing that frustration or showing how they really felt about those patients without consequence, Mm -hmm. then that buffered the effect. It basically neutralized it. So service acting was no longer associated with burnout. So it was kind of, we thought about it like, if you can go take a break from that regulation, if you you can just stop having to fake it and go and just have a moment, you don't even have to share it wasn't, a, it wasn't about social support or sharing or catharsis. It was just, do you feel safe just being real with your coworkers? And that just being feeling safe being real um, completely neutralized the burnout of surface acting. That's of so interesting. It. I actually have clients. I have a number of healthcare clients. And every time I talk to the emergency room nurses, they talk about this. Mm-hmm. There's a, Most of them have something in place. They actually have a formalized system in place where they're feeling stressed, overwhelmed, um, they're dealing with negative patients or something going on, they have like a place they can go. And it's a very formal environment where they go there and then usually a nurse lead or some other nurse will go with them mm-hmm. and they can just blurt out everything they're feeling, curse, do whatever they need. And there's somebody there with them, but they're, I think it's that whole, like, I can tell you that I hate this patient, even though they're really sick and I probably shouldn't say that. Um, and then it's just is really interesting because they always talk about how this is so important for their organization, that this mm-hmm. is part of their culture and their climate. And um, it's really cool that it's supported in the research. Yeah. Is kind of I'd like to practice. hear. I'd like to hear more about that group because I, I feel like it's it's often not uh, there's not it's not formalized in the same way that you're describing um, in most places. And and in some contexts you don't have a back room even. I feel like you think about a lot of administrative staff or receptionists, they don't have a, a space mm-hmm. to go yeah. that's their own unless they go into a bathroom stall, you know? And um, I mean, there's a lot of service jobs where you might have to go hide out in the in the utilities closet, you know, yeah. to, to have a, a safe space. Um, and it's certainly hard to fit two people in. <laughs> that's really right. what you need is to have that <laughs> yeah. person that you can kind of, and what, what you're describing is getting those emotions validated, mm-hmm. right? To feel heard and to kind of drop the mask for just a little bit mm-hmm. and be, be yourself um, and show how you're really feeling. And, and somehow that's, that's energizing. It's not, um, I know there's concern that by venting that it, it escalates, right? There's concern that if we get angry and express it, then it just escalates and it kind of has that facial feedback uh, loop where then we, oh, I'm showing anger, I feel anger, and now I'm going to show more anger. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't think it's that, or at least not, that's not, what I, that's not what I'm seeing. It's really more that we need to 
to be validated that we're feeling in a way that we realize is not healthy for this job performance we have to do. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be good to show those feelings to the customer or the patient or the client. So there has to be some other safe way to to deal with it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess for employers, it probably would be a good idea if you know that the job is high in emotional labor to provide some kind of a place where people can sort of be away from uh, whoever they're having to act in front of, whether it's the customer or a client or a patient or whatever. Um, I know I worked in restaurants for a really long time, and it was a little bit difficult because in some restaurants, the kitchen's really close to where the people are eating. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, a lot of restaurant owners don't want you like talking about the people that are eating yeah. in the <laughs> restaurant while they're there. But some, you know, you get really mistreated a lot of times as restaurant servers and staff and so you know we would often like use a lot of like it's interesting like facial expressions or whatever but not say stuff and um but at least we had that ability to do something Mm. um to sort of commiserate with one another but it would have been nice to at least have a space where if things got really if things really escalated that you could take a few minutes and just like Mm -hmm. settle down and yeah one thing about if you don't have that um then you go to online right I mean, mm-hmm. if you've seen these like customersuck.com type mm-hmm. of yeah. web pages where that's then where it gets released and that's a yeah. public forum that's probably not healthy for right. organization <laughs> yeah. for people to see. Yeah, no, that's no. not good either. Well, the place that I was talking about, the healthcare client, they actually do a training too. So to get, I think, at the fear of escalation, um, they coach everybody when they first start mm-hmm. about this process. And so everyone gets like coaching around, okay, how do you deal with your coworker might come to you, you know, you, you have to, you see a coworker go to this room, you go to the room with them mm-hmm. and then you listen and you can share your emotions, but like, mm-hmm. how do you like keep it kind of neutral instead mm-hmm. of escalating and getting more and more frustrated? So they do provide some coaching for people when they first get into that environment. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. It is. And I, I, you're making me think in my current role as well, where I'm working a lot with grad students, um, that that's a big part of what, what I find I need to do for grad students to help support them. So they come in upset about something happening with their advisor, and it's a power differential similarly to a supervisor's subordinate relationship, right? So they, they come in and they, they don't know what to do and they're upset. A friend or their family member, if they were talking to them, would sit there and be like, oh, that's terrible, and I can't believe they treated you that way, and then it escalates, mm-hmm. right? And then you feel worse in some ways. But my role is kind of similar to what you're describing with your healthcare client. My role, as I see it, is to help them kind of take perspective, right? So I listen and I validate how they're feeling. And it's like, yeah, you, I can tell you're really upset. But then, well, let's think about why might that have happened and what might be going on in that person's life or in that person's um, work experience that might have made them act that way. Let's assume that people have the best intentions in mind. Let's just right. start there rather than assume the opposite, and then think through, could it have been due to these other factors? And I find that's really powerful. It's not always true. Sometimes people are kind of hostile. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but it, it's very powerful as a way of shifting, and that's that other way of regulating emotions, right? The deep acting approach is if you can shift how you're thinking about the situation or how you're thinking about that person that's acting in a way that you don't like, um, and you change why you think it's happening or how you see that person, it can really be a powerful way of changing your own reaction to it yeah which relates to like receiving feedback negative feedback right if you can change how you think about that and you see it as information like it's such a simple shift like this is information i don't have to i could use it i could decide i don't agree with it but i don't have to take it personally Mm -hmm. yeah like i don't have to see it as someone attacking me 
And right. that's a conscious choice. You can see it as an opportunity to improve. And maybe companies can set up systems in which people who experience negative customer encounters or client encounters or whatever on the job can think about, try to do perspective taking and think about it differently to reframe, um, which could be really interesting. Yeah. I know um, in the classes that I teach at Villanova, um, which is slightly masochistic because I have to regrade a lot of stuff, but <laughs> I um, let my students retake any exam at any point in the semester and rewrite any paper at any point in the semester mm-hmm. to get half the credit back so that my feedback is seen as an opportunity mm-hmm. to improve. So they reframe, and I see people with lower grades getting less upset because they reframe it as, this is information that I haven't gotten it yet, but I can try again. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, I think that that cognitive switch could be helpful um, in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be careful too, though, if you're talking about like customer, customers treating employees badly. Is it feedback? I mean, you can right. take, you can do perspective taking and say, well, they're clearly upset about something. Right. Um, so what could that be? Is that something I have control over? Is right. It something that we can change in our workplace that maybe I need to communicate to my managers, whoever has the power to change it. Um, or is this person just kind of a jerk? Right, yeah. And that can yeah. be true, too. And, and then you have the issue of, I don't deserve to be treated that way. Right. And that's where, you know, that's the other kind of, going back to the idea of tips and as being a supportive mechanism, it can also make you accept treatment, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need to get that tip. You need to get that financial right. incentive. So you're going to fake it. You're going to do surface acting in order to get that tip or in order to make sure the customer is satisfied when they leave. And then at what cost, mm-hmm. right? So you're now accepting this behavior because you feel like you have no other way of changing it. And then um, I think I think that has its own costs as well. So going back, to the, like, what if the employee could actually say, I'm sorry, that's not really an appropriate way to talk to me. Can we try that conversation again? Like, oh my gosh, how empowering would that mm-hmm. be? Yeah. And then the customer actually learns something about this is, <laughs> this is actually a dialogue and you can't do what you just did, but we could try again, right? Yeah. Some feedback, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you half credit, right? <laughs> Come back and try again on that, that exchange we just had. Right. It's um, like reminding the customer that I'm a person too yeah. as an employee. And I think when you've done both sides... You're not, right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, whenever I'm upset about something and I have to call the call center agents of whatever, mm-hmm. I always start off with, I know this isn't your fault. Yeah. But here's mm-hmm. where I'm at. Right. Like, I, I want to be really clear. I'm not angry at you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I feel like if we all could do that little, if everyone had to have a service job, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know what it's like to right. be on the other end of that. Yes. Everyone maybe, should. I really think yeah. everyone should. Yeah. Like at one point in their life, have like a year where yeah. you have to deal with customers and then you should hopefully be nicer mm-hmm. to people. Um, I kind of do the same thing whenever I call customer service, mm-hmm. but I'm one of those people that when I get frustrated, I cry. So yeah. like, And I can't help it, but I just cry. And so I got the photo like, I'm not really that upset. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but see, actually research shows if you are really upset, you will get more. They will give you more. Or yeah. they'll pass you on to their manager. Good. Like, but I don't want to re- do that. It's reinforcing. The customers I know. are upset. I know, but I try to tell them, like, I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset. Don't ignore the fact that I'm crying. It's just my reaction. That's oh. just who I am. Um, so then I kind of feel bad because, yes, I think that they do take what I'm saying, like, oh, my gosh, she's crying. And I'm like, it's not you. But I think I remember I doing that too, like post kids or something where hormones were all out of whack. And I, just, yeah. I would just like cry at random things. Like you have to tell whoever you're interacting with at work, whatever, I'm sorry. It's really not you. I'm yeah. sleep deprived and I've been dealing with this crying baby. And I just, 
Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's that's still about what information our emotions sending. Mm-hmm. So I'm sending, I'm sending a signal right now that's not real, and I need to tell you that, mm-hmm. right? With these tears, or if I'm smiling and I don't really feel that way, we don't have the same thing. Like, mm. I mean, maybe that's what surface acting is—is is it's a way of kind of showing the mask, so the person knows I don't really like you that much. I'm just doing my job, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's a safety thing, right? I mean, especially in contexts where there could be harassment coming from the customer, like, I need to use a, this mask. I am not going to show you. I, I don't want you to think that I actually like you. Right, you know? yeah, like, yeah. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Right. This is my customer service mask. Um, so that's a signal that actually could be healthy in some ways, the surface acted um, signal. Yeah, since people can tell, um, mm-hmm. customers can tell when it's real or when it's not. Or at least they think so, they can. Yeah, they can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if everybody's very good at yeah. that. yeah. Yeah, so I actually have a study that we're just starting, um, where we're, we're trying to look at that, like, to what extent do people misconstrue mm-hmm. the facial expressions, especially if they have, if they have power, like, so if they have the power to give tips, you know, so reward power, or if they have power in other ways, like the customer's always right kind of mentality, are they more likely to misconstrue a smile in a service mm-hmm. context as being interest or attractiveness or attraction? Um, and then, you know, could that help explain why there's often these cases? I mean, there was just this cover story in, from the New York Times, right, mm-hmm. about how tipping is related to sexual harassment yeah. um, in the restaurant world. And, um, you know, I wonder to what extent that's due to these emotional labor requirements and to what extent it's due to this power differential that's created by tips and the interaction of those. Yeah. And I wonder if there's, I think we talked about this in a, with Lily in a previous episode, we, um, we talked about gender and emotions, right? And so I wonder if it has something to do with who can read those motions. Because I feel like someone's smiling, but their eyes aren't smiling, you know. Or at least I, maybe I don't always know, but I think I know. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think that some people don't notice that little piece. That someone's eyes can give it away. And there's a lot of people that just don't realize that. There is a very modest correlation between people's belief about their ability to read faces and their actual ability to read faces. <laughs> so basically, I don't know anything. <laughs> Maybe you do. There's a mild correlation. You could be that data point. I am that yeah, person. That, yes. that knows what she's doing. I mean, I think most of us want to believe, again, the yeah. good intentions of people. So we want to, if, if the employee is a good enough actor that we could believe that they really mm. like us, we'll accept that. Yeah, I'm a nice person. They should like interacting with me. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, so they could be that, um, on average men are less likely to see the alternative that maybe they're just doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. Either because they don't have the motivation to see it in reality or because they're not as skilled at reading it. There's some evidence for that. I was thinking about tipping actually, because with that same article and, you know, you hear the argument that whether or not we should even provide tips at a restaurant, like which should we just pay pay everybody normal price? Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I don't really know enough to know what, why that's not what we do. Like, I don't understand the financial model of restaurants. Like how would that change? I I assume that means that everything would have to get jacked up in the prices on the menus. Like what? It could. I don't know. Um, but I mean, I think that the margin on food is so high already, but then again, you also see companies that are not succeeding that are in the food business as well. So it's not like, you know, they're all every restaurant is rolling in it. Um, But yeah, I think, um, you know, waiters and waitresses get paid like two something an Mm -hmm. hour. Um, But it depends on where you are. Like in LA, they get, they have to have minimum wage and a lot of the nice restaurants pay 
well over that. So it'll be like $14 an hour for a server and they survive. I mean, I know right. food is more expensive than LA when you go out to eat, but it's not that much. It's not like New York right. prices. It's right. still relatively reasonable. Yeah. Um, and our waiters and waitresses are paid a normal wage. And at the and bottom of a lot of restaurants, menu, there's a ton of restaurants. And at the bottom of the menus too, there's oftentimes they'll, they'll say there's, we're adding a third, 3% surcharge to pay for our employees' health care. Hmm. And no one. And does it say, and do not leave a tip? No, you leave a tip too. Oh. The 3% is just for the, so that the employer can pay the healthcare cost. Um, and people, I don't, never heard anything complaining. I mean, you I'm also sure live that in California. There's, <laughs> yes, I guess, I guess. That's true. I mean, I'm sure that there's occasionally somebody that's really annoyed by this 3% healthcare charge, but um, it seems to work okay, and we have a lot of restaurants, so I yeah. think it's possible. I think that that article also talked about some cases where restaurant employ- or managers had to, made the choice to switch to a wage model and that were found it, found it workable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the alternative argument is would service decrease, right? So is is it that people are getting better service because those restaurant servers are really motivated to make sure that you're getting your needs met because they have, they're dependent on your tip? It's true. You go um, to Europe and no one's yeah, like right. bouncing to help you. <laughs> It's it's a it's more of a choice, yeah. In parts, right? Yeah. I mean, so there, it's more of a profession. Um, it's less of a kind of an entry level position as it is here. Mm-hmm. Thinking of France in particular, mm-hmm. which is kind of stereotypically known for not providing excellent interpersonal service in the restaurant context. Um, but it's a very different model. It's not service with a smile, Mickey Mouse style, you know, mm-hmm. um, right? Inter- service. It's very it's professional. It is a profession. Mm-hmm. So you will get professional, efficient, maybe. Maybe not service, <laughs> and then um, that's just the way it is. And you don't leave a tip, right? Mm-hmm. right? I remember being in Paris, and some people leaned over. They saw us like figuring out the bill, and the guy leans over and says in his French accent, "You don't have to leave a tip." And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> "That's so thanks, nice. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling me." Oh, that is really nice. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what it would do. It's an interesting experiment, though. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see, and also to see how it impacts, you know, burnout and well-being in terms of they don't have that. Because we talked about financial stuff being mm-hmm. positive. Yeah. Helping. So I think so... it would have to work differently where it would be more similar to a typical professional job. So if you are performing better based on other indicators, right. so rather than using tips as the indicator, it would be observation or customer comment cards or, you know, the way most other service contexts work, mm-hmm. um, then you get paid more in your wages. Yeah. Right? So you still are motivated to perform better. It's just through more of a traditional wage raises promotions model. Mm-hmm. You could become senior waiter, or head waiter, or whatever. Yeah. And, um, that model just typically isn't applied to, to restaurants. Yeah. It's sort of similar to the work that's done on salespeople that either work for mostly commission or work for and have a or have a salary and work for less commission yeah. in a yeah. sense. Um, and I'd be curious to see what the parallel between those two kinds of well, and now I'm also thinking, like, I know restaurant servers make a lot of money with tips, but they don't have to necessarily report accurately mm-hmm. on their yes. taxes, right? that is 100% That's true. Yes. So you lose a lot of money to taxes if you're making bigger wages. For sure, maybe yeah. it balances out such that you really don't end up taking home all that much more. Yeah. Or we just do the California model, and everyone gets paid well, and they get tips. <laughs> so they're, therefore, being a waiter is actually, like, a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if everybody agrees with that, though. California I actually had a, a restaurant of... client that is based in, in Illinois. And, um, <laughs> and, they, and I talked to the owner, and he was like, yeah, we're never going to California. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, because of your laws. Like, I'm not doing that. So 
might not be possible everywhere. <laughs> True. He's like, we're going to Texas. I was like, cool. California's makes sense. little world in some ways. It's different. It's good. It's um, so if there are people listening um, that are employees who are working in jobs that um, they may have to perform emotional labor or they may uh, have to uh, be finding themselves in situations where they're dealing with customers, clients, et cetera, on a regular basis, what would you tell them to do mm-hmm. um, in order to make themselves more well in their jobs? So, I mean, I think there's there's two different answers to that. And one is what what is the person's own responsibility and then what can management help them to do, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and I think they have to work in tandem. Um, so some of the things that they can do really require some management support. So one of them is taking those breaks, right? So the backroom break or even just a momentary by yourself, kind of micro break where you just kind of can pull yourself back together after an upsetting interaction, um, whether it's because a client, a patient is, is really ill and you really care about them, not that you're faking it, you just have to pull yourself together or whether it's a hostile call center interaction, right? Um, but being able to take those breaks is not possible in all jobs because of management policies. Like call center mm-hmm. workers are often kind of half literally chained to their chair. Like they mm-hmm. have to check out and they only have certain times and certain lengths of times so they can take breaks. So, I mean, a, a general finding that we have in, in the research that I've done is that autonomy, so having the behavioral autonomy, the ability to choose for yourself when you take your breaks and what you do on your breaks um, can make a big difference, and that requires some management support to allow that to happen. Um, and then also uh, using that, those kind of more perspective-taking and, and uh, deep, the deep acting techniques we talked about that can require some management support as well because you either need some time and space to do it, so kind of step back and be able to take perspective on why that customer's upset. That, that requires a little bit of space, you know, that might not happen if you're having to respond right in the minute. Um, but it also might require some training, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about the term deep acting comes from theater, and people spend years figuring out how do you act in a way that conveys the emotion you want to convey in a way that's realistic, Right. Well, servers don't get that. You know, mm-hmm. employees that are supposed to interact yeah. interpersonally with people I never don't, got that. don't get that training. <laughs> Teachers don't get that training. No. You know? <laughs> I can tell you, I mean, I was in theater, and it totally helps me in the classroom to learn how to use your voice, get really quiet, everyone kind of leans in. And then you suddenly give the big points, and people notice <laughs> it, right? And using your face so that it, it's variable. People pay more attention to things that are variable, whether it's your voice or your face. You know, like all of those things... Um, are ways of conveying information. And really what companies want is for people to convey, their employees to convey emotional information that will tell the customer that they're uh, desired, that they are wanted, that they would like them to come back, that that employees are are available to help them. Um, That's why they want service with a smile. But there's probably a variety of ways that that can be communicated that doesn't have to be a pasted on smile, right? So either training people how to use kind of um, these deeper techniques or permitting kind of more autonomy in both how you take breaks and how you show those um, positive expressions uh, could go a long way. And just as one example of that, you know, there's a couple of um, restaurants that do the negative display model, oh, yeah. right? What's that? Um, Ed De- De- I don't Ed know De- what they're called. And but they're the ones that, like, they're mean they to you. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have that one in, in the Penn State community downtown. Yeah. And it's now closing, sadly. But, oh, no. Uh, yeah, but the, the model is, is it's fun to go there because it's unique. Right. You get insulted instead of smiled at. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's a, just a different way of, of entertaining or, or showing the customer that you're you're trying to 
um, engage them, you know, and keep them interested. And so I think there's a lot of different ways that can be done that doesn't um, confine employees to one role that has to be followed in one way, which I think can be quite um, limiting and, and distressing to people. Yeah, we talk about autonomy a lot in different episodes and in our articles. I mean, I think that's just a theme across all of this, that having some control in your job yeah. helps you manage stress, burnout, all those different things. So I think that's a really good tip, and it makes and a lot of sense. It's not always possible, right? I mean, to be yeah. fair, right, if you have a new employee, they do need a script. They do need to know, right. you know, some, they need some amount of rules of how, you know, what do I do to be successful here? And um, so I think when people are new or when they're, they're really unskilled and they're learning those skills, then I think some amount of direction, role clarity, right, mm-hmm. is also helpful. Um, so I know a recent paper showed it's a curvilinear effect, right? So um, the more rigid those emotional labor requirements, um, it, it's a, as it increases from zero, it's better. But as it gets too rigid, then it's worse, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that upside down U-shape effect. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So a kind of happy medium of autonomy. Yeah. And and to the right people that need the guidance early in their right. careers. Yeah. But then give freedom once people kind of have shown, I know what I'm doing and trust me that I know the ways to enact this role. Yeah. And I think that there's also different types of autonomy. So there might be a script that's required, yeah. but then like you were talking about the breaks. So having mm-hmm. the flexibility around your breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might not have autonomy in all components of your job, but some components mm-hmm. can make a difference. And being able to reasonably deviate from the script. So, um, you know, if you really feel like a customer has a complaint that you feel like, oh gosh, like what we did was really wrong. Like the company messed up and I only have, you know, this script available to me and I feel like I need to go over and above that or I feel like you know that you can vary things so that you're addressing the needs of the customer and you can probably feel like you have more meaning or purpose Mm -hmm. in your role because you're actually able to solve a problem yourself as opposed to like this is the thing I have to tell you at this time that's (laughs) absolutely true and actually the meaningfulness and feeling of purpose of the job really helps to also mitigate the the need to have to control the emotions and it goes both ways too so I mean, if you guys have flown recently, right? Isn't it always more fun when the flight attendant does the little safety thing where they deviate from the script? Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, you actually the pay jokes. attention. Yeah, the jokes. Yeah. And yeah. they're singing a song instead of reading it. Yeah. You know, like Southwest is Southwest really good about that. Yeah, yeah. And not all of them do it, and I think that makes sense. Not all of them are stand-up comedians or whatever. But it's, it, it's kind of helpful from a customer's perspective as well as the employee's perspective. They have the autonomy to choose how to enact it, and the customers kind of appreciate a more personalized yeah. or... Um, customized experience Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not always the same yeah so um, all of the work that you've described is so relevant to uh, what we're trying to do here in terms of alleviating burnout and increasing employee well-being what are some of the things that you're working on right now or some of the questions that you're trying to answer right now that you find really exciting like what are a few things that you think um, still need to be explored as related to burnout and health. Well, so one one finding, another uh, interesting recent finding um, that we didn't take to, to the next level um, was the role of emotional labor and, and race. Um, so uh, we actually have a finding that, um, that surface acting, which is generally the more de- depleting and exhausting way of doing emotional labor, um, was really necessary for African-American service workers to be able to be seen as equivalently good performers as white 
um, performers. And this was done in a couple of different contexts with experimental designs and with field survey designs and grocery stores and in sales contexts. And we kept finding the same effect. And, and basically it's that if, um, so if you think about those breaks and how sometimes you're just not in the mood to fit, put on that smile, when a, a, an African-American or black employee deviates from the script, then when they kind of don't put on the smile, they are penalized more strongly for it um, than a white employee who's given kind of the benefit of the doubt. And so that's where you see the, the constant maintaining of that smile on the face, that surface acting every day constantly is more necessary to be seen as similar, you know, as equivalent in performance ratings as the white employee who has more latitude to, to deviate from the script. And I mean, all what we were doing in that study was showing the effect on performance evaluations, okay. and both in the lab and in the field with supervisor ratings. So both first-time interactions from participants in the lab, but also supervisor ongoing ratings were also shown to have the same effect, which matters, right, for raises and promotions and everything. And mm -hmm. you know, these are your entry-level job, and where can they go if they're getting low ratings from the beginning? Um, so um, what we didn't do was look at, well, how does this work in terms of exhaustion? How does this work in terms of burnout? So if if African Americans are finding that they have to do more of these um, serv service acting just to, to get ahead, you know, just to be seen as equivalent, are they also experiencing higher levels of burnout because of these higher levels of having to surface act, or are the rewards kind of um, diff buffering the 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 costs? You know, are the, is there a, a compensatory loop such that it's maybe not as exhausting? I, I don't know. We haven't tested that question. So that's, that's not really surprising, though. That's like right? the research version of the movie Get Out. <laughs> oh, jeez. With less violence, I yeah. <laughs> But it's not that surprising. And it's, yeah. I, it'd be interesting to see, though, what happens with exhaustion because maybe it helps them get ahead today mm -hmm. if they're putting on that extra surface acting to be the same as every other white employee. But then that level of burnout just continues to grow, and then maybe they can't get ahead because then they start, they just get too burnt out and they can't continue to perform at that level. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's something we don't have a good handle on as well is the difference between kind of those momentary benefits and long-term costs. So another interesting finding that's related to health and well-being um, that we're currently working on is hopefully going to be coming out soon is how much labor is related to drinking behavior. Hmm. So um, we, we find that chronically, so if you look at the person level, people who tend to surface act more tend to drink more hmm. and excessively, drink excessively in an unhealthy way. Um, and that's controlling for negative affective tendencies and all sorts of other gender and all sorts of other predictors of heavy drinking. Um, so there's something about faking it in addition to feeling negatively. The, the faking it also seems to be linked to, to drinking behavior. And one explanation for that is, is I'm regulating so much at work, I just have to let it all go when I get home. Like, I just need to stop regulating. And yeah. one behavior I could stop regulating is drinking. You could also imagine overeating and other impulsive right. behaviors coming out. Um, it's been shown with aggression, too, that, that yeah. impulse control is, is lacking when you've been controlling it all day. But what we're seeing is that on the day-to-day -day level, we don't see that effect. So on the days that people surface act more than usual, they're not necessarily drinking more than usual, unless they're in certain circumstances, certain kinds of jobs. You know, it's a, a specific finding in a specific context. Mm -hmm. Um, but if they're deep acting, they do less drinking. Like they feel good about themselves. They, right. they kind of don't mind staying in that kind of work mode because, they, and they don't need to like go and drink to forget all about it. They, right. they feel good about what they've done at work today. 
Um, but yeah, so there's differences of things happening, I think, in the momentary, that moment, the day-to-day, you know, what do you have to do to get by? And, and what are the effects of that on burnout um, and, and drinking is different than what are the effects if I do it over years, yeah. right? Year after year, day after day, hour after hour. Um, and the accumulative effect is where I think we, we really see the health drops. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, just one more thing, and then we'll give you your uh, final we have a final fun question, oh, but uh, I was thinking about how that might relate to, uh, for uh, minority employees, some of what I hear when I'm out in organizations or collecting data um, in the diversity spaces, you know, the thing that I don't like about, uh, you know, certain people from certain minority groups is you say one little thing to them and they fly off the handle and everybody's so sensitive and blah, blah, but it could be that this these years of kind of playing nice and having to do that more you get to a certain point over time where it's like, okay, I'm not doing it anymore, right? And you just snap. And so um, I I think that's really interesting to see what the links between, like, I don't even know, like irritability or heightened sensitivity to, um, you know, something like that Mm -hmm. over time might be cool. Um, Okay, so final fun question. And we'll see if you think it's fun. <laughs> or if I just we, stand up and stalk yeah, out the room. We've decided it's fun. Um, so we'll see if I want to play. If you could describe your perfect day that would be ideally balanced between work and life, hmm. what would that day look like? So I have these perfect days. Oh, And that's I awesome. feel so fortunate to have that, to be able to have that in my life. So a perfect day would be I, I get up and I go for a run. Um, first thing in the morning and then I help get my kids off to school and of course a loving and non-rushed manner where everybody gets along and nobody fights um, and then I um, have a cup of coffee and maybe read the paper and learn what's going on in the world and then I probably do some work because I actually like my work and it's pretty pretty fun check some emails check in with some people have a very healthy well-balanced lunch um, do some yoga, so go for a yoga class um, in the middle of the day, uh, preferably walking there or biking. And I, I'm very fortunate I live in a place where that's possible, you know, in the small town that I live in. And then work some more and feel productive and uh, I'm solving the problems of the world in a meaningful and important way, interacting with people, hopefully at some point through that process, helping support um, my colleagues and my, the students that I work with. And then getting home at a reasonable hour where my husband and I can make dinner together. We've been using Blue Apron. This is not meant to be a commercial. But <laughs> it's but really great. I love, yeah. <laughs> I love to have that. I don't have to think about the meal. It's there in the box. I just make it, and they're, they're good. Um, and then we, we probably have a beverage of choice and uh, hang out with the kids and uh, play a game instead of screen time. That would be ideal. And go to bed at a reasonable hour, which in my ancient age is like 10. That's pretty good. I feel like 10 yeah. at that time, too. <laughs> that, and that's actually a pretty, re- that's that's a day that I, I have, you know, on a semi-regular basis, which feels pretty good. That awesome. like a nice day. So it can be done, people. <laughs> it's possible. Well, yeah. I have a, a you know, academic life is, is unique in many yeah. ways, but I feel very fortunate to be able to have it and to be able to study stuff that matters to people. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you yeah, for thank being you here. For we really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck in your upcoming research, and we can't wait to see it come out. Thanks. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek, 
and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Mm-hmm.